You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name's Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church. Today, we're talking about family, and I want to start off by just showing you a picture of my family. Uh, On the right side of the picture, you have myself, my wife. We have three daughters. On uh, the left side, you have my brother and his family. And then in the middle, you have uh, my parents right there. I don't know what you can tell about our family from that picture right there. Uh, They say a picture is worth a thousand words. And yet, there's so many more words that you could say, right? Not not pictured in uh, that family photo is my sister. Unfortunately, she was uh, not in town for that family photo shoot. So I guess I could have photoshopped her in or something like that. Uh, She just graduated college last week. Uh, Yeah, you could celebrate that. I don't think she watches our sermons, so she won't. She probably won't. not pictured in that photo is my in-laws, my wife's side of the family. My wife has four brothers, and so I think it's somewhat of God's mercy giving her uh, three daughters. <laughs> Not pictured in that family photo is all the memories and the laughter and the stories and the good times. And also not pictured in that photo is all the dysfunction and the fights and the bitterness and the hard times. There's so much more that you could say about a family than simply what you capture on a photo. Here's the point. You can unfriend someone, but you can't unfamily someone. (laughs) That's difficult. Family was invented by God. God has given us family, and in the church, he has given us a new family, and it's something that is difficult and messy, and yet also some of the most joy, the greatest joys in life come from the community that God has given us. And so family matters to God. It's a little bit of a du- double meaning, but today we're also going to look at some different family matters, some different uh, things that we need to wrestle with and talk with about family. And, uh, and I don't know what kind of family you grew up in. I don't know what your family photo looks like. Maybe for you, you might have something that looks like on the outside a picture-perfect family, but if there's something that we know, we know that no matter how good the picture looks on the fridge, there's always more to the story. And uh, families can be messy and difficult, and the church family is no exception to that. And so let's jump into our text. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be starting in the first couple verses. Paul's words to Timothy. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. If you were here last week, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and Paul says to Timothy, Don't let anyone despise you because of your because of your youth, because you're young. Now here we see some balance to that. He says, don't let anyone despise you because you're young, but don't then turn around and disrespect people who are older than you. You see that? The family language, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. Here's the point. We are family. We are. 
This is actually one of our core values at Hill City Church. We are family. We're not just like a family. We are a family. This is serious, not symbolism. And there's lots of symbols or metaphors used to describe the church. Christ is the head. We are the body. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. Jesus is the shepherd. We are the sheep. Light of the world, salt of the earth, city on a hill. All of those are metaphors. I'm not literally a sheep. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes sense. But when there's this language of brothers and sisters, it's not just another illustration used to describe the church. It's actually what we are. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul calls the church the household of God. Jesus, in Matthew 12.50, he says, Whoever does the will of his Father in heaven, that's his brother and sister and mother. We've not just been justified, and we're not just being sanctified, we are also familified. It's part of the gospel. We've been given a spirit, and the spirit is of adoption as sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. And I just want to tell you, if, if maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want to let you know that Christ died to forgive you from your sins, to free you, to raise you up into a new life, but also he died to adopt you into the family of God. There's another, there's another spot for you at the table. There's room for you in the family of God. And I just want to encourage you, seeing that photo of, of David's grandson just getting baptized, that, that I want to invite you to seriously consider getting baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've got church in the park at the end of the summer. We have, I think, about a dozen or more people already signed up to get baptized. Can we celebrate that? We're ready. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God. And I would encourage you, go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism, pray about that step, sign up, and we would love to invite you into that. Well, here's what it means for us to be the family of God. I think there's three main things. There's, there's many things that it means, but three main things right from the front. The first one is we spend time together. We spend time together. We show up. There's a family reunion. Put it on the calendar, right? You have to actually show up. You see the early church doing this in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And day by day, not week by week, by the way, not Sunday by Sunday, not 1.6 Sundays a month, which is the average church attendance in America, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What does this mean? It means it starts with showing up. You have to actually invest time and energy into becoming the family of God. It's something that you are, but it's something that you also have to schedule and you have to make time for. And it starts with showing up on Sundays, but it doesn't end there. There's that being in one another's lives, getting to know one another. Who are your brothers and sisters in Christ that you know and they know you and you're practicing the one another's of Scripture? Who are you confessing your sins to? Who's praying for you, right? Does that make sense? And so it's not just which church do you go to, it's who is your church? Who are your brothers and sisters? So that means we've got to spend time to, together. The second thing this means is it means we don't give up on each other. Like I said, you can unfriend someone, but you can't unfamily someone. Even when it's difficult. And it is difficult. I'll just own it. It's difficult. There's conflict. There's messiness in the church, in relationships. But for us, for, for Christ to die 
to shed his blood on the cross, to welcome us into his family, for us to just then cancel one another and give up on one another. Do you see that? This is the good news of the gospel we're talking about here. We don't give up on each other. Christ Jesus himself has reconciled us to God. Surely we can reconcile with one another. Some of Jesus' strongest teachings about forgiveness, by the way, is about us when we are unwilling to forgive one another. Because we've been forgiven because of the cross. In Ephesians 2.14, look at Paul's words. For he himself, Christ Jesus, is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's not only the dividing wall of hostility between us as sinful human beings and God, it's also the dividing wall of hostility between who? One another. The Bible doesn't paint this glittery picture that there's no dividing walls of hostility that exist or that, or that it's always easy, but it says that one of the things that Christ Jesus died to do is to break those dividing walls down with a sledgehammer. And so we forgive as we've been forgiven. We love because he first loved us. We reconcile because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ Jesus. And that's difficult, but it means we've got we to gotta learn how to get along We've got, to, we've got to learn how to get along with one another. We've got to enter into conflict in loving ways and gracious ways. And the third thing this means is it means we take care of one another. That's one of the primary things about family. Is there, there's an obligation. There's a responsibility to be there not just in the good times but also the difficult times. I think of Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is saying, do you want to know how you fulfill the law of Christ? You actually bear one another's burdens. So I, so I like to think, okay, if somebody is, if, if, if my, one of my brothers or sisters in Christ, especially someone who's like in my life group, or someone who, you know, who I know, and they're moving somewhere, it's like they have boxes that are literal burdens. And just showing up and carrying a few boxes, you're fulfilling, love your neighbor as yourself. When you do that, that's what it means. Primarily, it means that you take care of one another. And the rest of our passage today it's going to be a little bit of a long passage. We're going all the way to verse 16. Is a case study in how we do this, in how we take care of one another. So I'm going to do something a little bit different that I don't typically do. Uh, hopefully you have a Bible and it's open or you have uh, one of the ESV uh, uh, scripture journals. What's going to happen is this is a case study in a benevolence program for widows in the church. Okay, I'm going to set this up for you. 14 verses, and what Paul does to Timothy is this is important enough that Paul doesn't just say, Timothy, you'll figure it out. He actually uses space, pen and ink, in his letter to say, let me give you some instructions on which widows in the church should be enrolled and should be taken care of, financially speaking, by the church, and which ones don't qualify. And there's three different groups. And so what Paul does is he kind of jumps around. And he addresses this group, and then this group, and then this group. And he's like, oh yeah, and here's another thing on that group. And then let's go back to this one. And then the middle one. Let's talk about the middle. Okay, does that make sense? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to unjumble the passage as I preach it today. But that means I'm going to skip around a little bit. So typically I don't do that, but I'll announce which verses we're going through. We're going to start with... Uh, the category that Paul calls the real widows, okay? And by the way, this is another one of those passages that there's probably no way I would preach this unless I was forced to preach through 1 Timothy as a whole. Does that make sense? 
And just to be honest about that, I recognize that's how it is when you read your Bible, isn't it? There's passages where it's like, what's my devotional passage for the day? And you're like, what does this feeding program about widows have to do with me? And it, it might seem on the surface very little. And you might be tempted to just, well, I'll just skip that part. It doesn't apply. It doesn't mean anything to me. But as we'll see today, one of the things I hope that you also learn is, is you can watch and see what Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is profitable for teaching and, and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And so even these parts, that we can just be honest, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit difficult to apply. We're going to dig deep into it today, and we're going to see what God's word has for us. Amen? All right. The real widows. First Timothy, starting in 5.3. Honor widows who are truly widows. That's where we get this word, the, the real widows. Jumping down to verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has her hope set on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. You with me? Skip down to verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has, been brought, if she has brought up children, and has shown hospitality, and has washed the feet of the saints, and has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Okay, those are Paul's words about the real widows. Here's the qualifications for, for, one of, for one of these widows to receive financial support from the church. The first one is over 60 years old. So there's a certain age requirement, and that's because likely over the age of 60, the, the chances of remarriage are very unlikely at that point in time. Financially, there must be a need, right? She's dependent on God for ev like every, like day to day, she's praying, partially because she's praying for the saints, praying for the church, but she's also praying that God would fulfill her need day by day. So if somebody's not, maybe they're in the age category, but they don't have a financial need, then the church shouldn't be giving, writing that person a check every month. That makes sense. Uh, the next qualification is they don't have anyone else. It says that she's all alone. We'll look at this a little bit more in depth in a moment, but essentially the first line of defense to care for family members is not the church family. It's the blood family. It's your immediate family members. We'll look at that more in just a moment. And then the fourth qualification is this lady must have lived and demonstrated a godly lifestyle. So it's talked about all these sorts of things. She's demonstrated it in her parenting. She's demonstrated it in her prayer. She's washed feet. Maybe it's like literally washed feet or maybe it's just, you know, like Jesus did in John 13. Serve one another. She served one another in the church. Why is that? Why is there some sort of like moral or ethical requirement for people that the church supports? And I'll just say it like this. The church shouldn't fund sinful behavior. Does that make sense? So even if someone like needs the money and the, you know, they're, they're in a position, they're in an age category, but they're, we're pretty sure if the church cut that person a check, it would just be spent on alcohol or, or on different things, right? The church shouldn't be known as handing out money, which is just going to then turn around and fund a sinful lifestyle. So you must check out at least to some degree for ongoing financial commitments, a person's ethical behavior. Here's the example. I'm going to give you an example for each one of these three categories. The example for the real widows would be Anna. Do you remember Anna from Luke chapter 2? This is Jesus uh, when he's a baby. He, he's brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph. And Simeon blesses him and prophesies over him. Well, there's a prophetess named Anna who's there. And she was married for seven years, widowed, 
and has remained unmarried to the age of 84. So she definitely qualifies, okay? And this is what it says about Anna in Luke 2.37. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And so there's this godly widow. She's in the temple. She's, some have said, like, maybe she's hired by the temple. I don't think so. I think she's at the temple voluntarily. She's like, you know what? I'm not going to be dedicated to my, I don't have a family. I've been widowed. I'm going to be dedicated to the Lord's service. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. I'm going to prophesy. She's a prophetess. She actually gets to meet little baby Jesus, right? And see him. And, and that's a beautiful experience. And yet that's exactly the kind of person that the church should step up and, and care for. We have to remember, cover to cover in Scripture, God is a defender of orphans and widows. God stands in the gap for the oppressed and the powerless, and that means that God's church should stand in the gap too. Look at what James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Remember Matthew 25, the difference between the sheep and the goats, Jesus says, is actually the sheep are the ones who fed the hungry, they clothed the naked, they visited the lonely, right? So there is this, this tangible part of what the church is designed to be as the family of God. It's not necessarily even to be a humanitarian effort out in the world, but for our brothers and sisters and our, our mothers who have been widowed, right, to stand in the gap for those who are part of our family who don't have anyone else. That's actually pure religion, according to James. And uh, one of the things that I'm so proud of our church for is I see this all the time. I see people standing in the gap, showing generosity, not even relying on the church to create a program to enroll someone in, but people just seeing a need, sometimes within their own life group, sometimes just in someone else in the church. People have been given vehicles. People have been helped in so many different ways, financially, medical bills, standing in the gap, not just in prayer. Now, prayer is very important. You don't want to undermine that. But we don't just pray for one another because faith without works, James said, is dead. We don't just say, go, be clothed, be fed. We actually show up and we help people. I want to show you a few pictures that the youth ministry served during Impact Month last month at the Boise Christian Retirement Village. And it's just a bunch of teenagers visiting older people, older Christians. This is what we're talking about. Caring for them, helping with yard work, right? Visiting people, spending time with them. This is very, very significant for us as the church. But what I want to highlight, though, is that the goal of something like an impact month is not to say, all right, see you in a year. See you next time the pastor told me to plan a service project and show up. The goal of something like this is just to highlight there are needs within the family of God. And we need to build a culture and a community where you see a need and you step up and you meet a need. Does that make sense? That's, that's really, the gospel should actually impact us in such a way that we take ownership over even the needs of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, spiritual fathers and mothers in our midst. And every time I see stories of, the, there, by the way, there, that was not the only group that visited the Boise Christian Retirement Village during Impact Month. We financially support that as a church, right? There are things in place, but I just want to encourage you and kind of spur you on to love and good works. 
as you see people in our church community, that this is not just what's the church's new program that we're going to roll out, but we want to build a culture where we are a family. Does that make sense? All right, that's the real widows. Let's look at the next category is the widows with families. We'll start off in 1 Timothy 5, verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Skipping down to verse 7. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives... And especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And all the way down to verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And here what we see is we see the first exception to, to widows who should not be financially taken care of by the church, and that's widows who have their own families. And so this is to avoid the situation for someone who has maybe an elderly parent or grandparent who has the means of actually taking care of them. What Paul is saying is don't bring that person first to the church and say, could you guys take care of my my grandma or could you take care of my grandpa? The first thing for that person to do is to look at what can you do? How can you step up? And what this is fulfilling is it's not just, he says it is a little bit of a return. That person cared for you when you were in diapers. That person taught you how to pour a bowl of cereal. That person, like, think of all that your, 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 your family has poured into you, even if they've been dishonorable in other ways. And I just have to highlight that. We are called to honor our fathers and mothers. It's in the Ten Commandments is what this is based on. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, number five, in the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments primarily have to do with someone's relationship with God, and the last six have to do with your relationship with one another. The very first one about the one another's is honor your father and mother. That's what this requirement is based on. So here's the point. The point is this. Um, you never out, you're never too old to honor your parents. Sorry, I skipped a slide there. You're never too old to honor your parents. And so you get to an age, especially when you move out of the house or you get married, you start your own family, where you're actually no longer required to obey your parents anymore. They may not know that, by the way. So there might be some boundaries and some things. But once you, once you start a new family, you, you, you're no longer required to obey your parents, but you never outgrow honoring them. You never outgrow honoring them. And part of honoring your father and mother is taking care of them. Now, here's why this is significant for the church. It's significant for the church is while it is important for the church to take care of physical needs of people, is that our primary mission as the church? According to Christ Jesus, it's not. So let's go back a slide. Sorry, I skipped this slide. We we see this in the early church. In Acts chapter 6, there is a situation. And funny enough, it actually also has to do with a feeding program for widows. So you want to talk about an example that ties in perfectly to our passage for today. It's in the Jerusalem church. They're having this issue with feeding widows. And this is the apostles' response. They they put in place, they appoint seven guys, and those guys are meant to handle the, the feeding program. But then they say this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They said, this is important. It's important enough that we're going to see to it that somebody gets it done 
that somebody sorts it out, that somebody manages it. And I would say today, there's so many even parachurch organizations that we want to partner with, and they specialize in some of this sort of stuff. And so it's actually a better use of my time to support other groups who can manage and handle and take care of this stuff well, so that we don't get off track in the primary mission, go into all the earth, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything that I've committed you. That's our mission. I want to be crystal clear about that. So a church who has all these sorts of needs is like, well, I, can't, I don't even have time to preach the gospel anymore. I don't even have time to make disciples anymore. We don't have time to baptize anyone anymore because we're so busy taking our physical needs. That's actually a problem we must avoid in the church. So be very, this is why Paul's like, okay, if you got family, talk to them first. Does that make sense? And if not, there are other organizations that we can support, that we can partner with, who can help us care for orphans and widows and others who are in situations of need. But the Pharisees, we see them neglecting this. This is one of the uh, things that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees about. In Mark chapter 7, verse 9, and Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And the situation that Jesus is addressing there is very religious people, religious leaders, who instead of supporting their own parents, when their parents would say, hey, I'm in need. We don't, I don't have enough to pay rent this month. Or I don't have enough for food this month. The Pharisees would be like, well, I'm sorry. I already gave the money I would have given to you to the church. So... And then they actually have to give less money to the church because they've already given their, their temple ties. Does that make sense? So who's really pocketing the extra money in that situation? The religious leaders. And they're neglecting, what's the commandment of God? The commandment to honor your father and mother. And Jesus is very harsh towards these. See, what neglecting your family does is it actually ruins our witness to the world. This is what Paul means when he says, you're worse than an unbeliever. It doesn't necessarily mean that that person is no longer saved or anything like that. What it means is, even unbelievers get this. Even people who aren't filled with the Holy Spirit of God, even people who aren't part of the household of faith, they get this. And if somebody looks inward to the church and they see the church not actually taking care of your own immediate family members... What is that going to do with the kind of community that they think that the, the gospel creates? And they say, well, we have, a, we have better family loyalty than even the church does, right? And so this is very, very important for us to get right. Hughes and Chapel, they say it like this. Today, despite the cultural nets of social security, retirement benefits, and interest on investments, Christian children are to care for their parents. And if financial provision is unneeded, there is still a Christian obligation for hands-on loving care. And we can just admit, this is not, we don't live in the first century anymore. There are certain things, right? There, there is like retirement funds and some of that sort of stuff. So it, it doesn't mean if your parents are fine financially that you, now you have to pay them every month or anything like that. If there is a need and you have the opportunity to meet that need, I, I call on you to do that, right? To take care of your relatives. But if, even if there's not a need, that idea of honor goes beyond just financial, tangible things. Maybe this afternoon, the best application for today's passage is to just like call your mom, call your dad, like call a relative that you think, man, I don't know how many other people are just checking in on them. I don't know how many other people are, are, are actually reaching out 
to them. Maybe you're in that position and you have kids. Just reach out to them today. Just say like, hey, I just wanted to like, can we grab lunch? Could we chat? Could we get to know one another? This is a, a, a phenomenal example. So the example for the first category of real, real widows was uh, Anna. The example for this category is Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Sometimes we forget that Mary was a widow. And you see this beautiful scene. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, about to die on the cross. This is like some of his final breaths. And you know how, you, you know what happens when someone's nailed to the cross with, with nails in their hands? They can't even like breathe and they have to like use every ounce of energy to like <gasps> get to, So the words that Jesus said before he died for the sins of the world, he's doing some pretty important work there, by the way, atoning for the sins of the world. Like, think about what's going through his mind. One of the things that's going through the mind of Christ is I hope my widowed mother is taken care of. Look at this. John 19, 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John himself, the apostle John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, what's interesting about this is that Mary had other sons. I don't know if Jesus, like, didn't trust his brothers or what the family dynamics were. But Jesus is like, I'm not going to leave it to some benevolence program to take care of my mom. I'm not just going to put it in the hands of the church in general. And Jesus believes in the church. It's his church. He's building the body of Christ, right? He's like, I'm not going to just be like, well, the church will take care of Mary. And he's not even saying like, my brothers will take care of Mary. He's like, I want to make sure in the moment that he's dying and atoning for the sins of the world, he sees his mother who's witnessing this horrific death on the cross. And he says to the apostle John, could you take care of my mom? That's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? That Christ is the perfect example in all ways. He should be our example in how we take care of our own parents, church. Amen? So look to Christ. Some of you are like, I, now I really need to call my mom. Okay. <laughs> Third category. Third category. These are the young widows, if you're taking notes. The third category is young widows. We're going to start off in verse 6, 1 Timothy 5. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Skip down to verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows... For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Here's some puzzling words here. And to help us wrestle with this, I would just say that Paul pretty clearly has a specific group of younger widows in mind. A specific group of young widows who are already living an ungodly life. As soon as their husbands have passed away, they now have an opportunity. Perhaps these younger widows have even been left with an inheritance. So they don't actually need to concern themselves with paying the bills or now they, now they have land, now they have a home and it, it, he kind of paints this picture of they have idle hands and they don't have anything else to do and so they're actually falling into sin. This could be perhaps the same group of what Paul calls weak-willed women in 2 Timothy 3, 6-7 through 7, 
whom the false teachers are finding a foothold in the homes of these women. We don't know it's the same group or not, but perhaps it is. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, maybe you've read 1 Corinthians 7, he favors singleness. He favors singleness. Why does he favor singleness? He's a little bit biased because he himself is? He's single. And he's like, here's all the benefits of being single. You can be a missionary. You can get shipwrecked. And you can get almost beaten to death. And no one's worrying about you. And you go to prison a bunch of times. Like, okay, you see that? He has this wild, apostolic, church-planting, missionary, like, life. He could not live that life. I shouldn't live that life because I got a family, right? You see that? So, that? so Paul, he's a little bit biased, and he actually owns that he's biased. He's like, no, this is me. I'm a little bit biased. But he actually gives that advice to widows. He's like, hey, if you can be like Anna, if she's like the ideal widow, she's married for seven years, and then what did she do with the rest of her life? She dedicated it to the, the work of the Lord. So that's Paul's preference because he also, know, he also notices if you're not dedicating yourself either to another family or to the work of the Lord, very likely you're going to dedicate yourself to some of these other activities, which he says is, is following after Satan. And, we, and for some of these younger widows, potentially they're getting caught up in even sensual living. Living their best life now is how we would say it in a cultural uh, lens. In 1 Corinthians 7, these are Paul's words to, again, the same kind of group of women. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for, for them to remain single as I am. He's like, again, look at me, right? As I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So you see that. The temptation there is just give yourself to a new family, get remarried, so that way you're not, you're not struggling with, with burning with passion, with lust, with sexual immorality, and the rest. Again, at the end of that chapter in 1 Corinthians 7.39, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, but then he has this line, which is very important, only in the Lord. And this is what I think is also a temptation. We cannot reduce the holy covenant of marriage to a merely financial decision, which would be a temptation for a widow who maybe their husband didn't leave them a sizable inheritance. And they're just like, well, now I have to figure out how to pay the bills, how to keep the house, how to keep the cat. Well, I'll just save you on that one. Just get rid of the cat, okay? <laughs> no, they're having to figure out all these sort of financial decisions. And he says, okay, don't just rush off and marry the first guy that you meet who can help you pay the bills. If that person is not a believer, especially. Does that make sense? And so that's why he says, you're free to get remarried, but make sure your second marriage, hopefully your first one was as well, but hopefully your second marriage is in the Lord. That's, you're still asking the question, not just how can I pay the bills and how can I start a, you know, start a new family with a new person, but you're still looking at how can I marry a godly person? How can I still marry a believer? And here's the example of this. Again, what we, we see these great examples that I think help inform our thinking. And the example of this kind of widow, this young widow, is Ruth. Do you remember the story of Ruth in the Old Testament? A beautiful story of family and loyalty and being there for one another. Ruth's story starts with tragedy. Ruth's, uh, Ruth is from Moab, a neighboring nation to Judah. And uh, there's a famine. So the story starts with like, Everyone's hungry. And then Naomi and her family, they're, they're living in 
Judah, and they actually have to move out of the land. They move to Moab, and Naomi has her husband and two sons, and those two sons get married to Orpah and Ruth. And the story begins with, and all three of the men die. So this is a story of not just one widow. It starts with three widows, two younger widows, one older widow. Naomi's the the mother-in-law. And Naomi's like, well, listen, what are we going to do? You know? And so she encourages Ruth and Orpah, you're still young, you're young widows, go and get remarried. Stay here in your own land. I'm going to go back to my homeland. And this is Ruth's response, a beautiful passage from Ruth 1:16 to 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. This is where these words come from. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She vows herself, life or death, come what may, to her mother-in-law. And it's very realistic that they might die of poverty. It would be better off. Like, Naomi's advice is sound advice. Stay here, your own land, your own people. It's going to be a lot easier for you to get remarried here than it is for you if I bring you back to Judah. And she says no, and she swears her allegiance to her mother-in-law. Whew, powerful. So she, she said, I'm going to take care of Naomi. She takes it upon herself, by the way. Not even her blood relative. This is her mother-in-law, Okay. The father-in-law is dead. Her husband's dead. You would think like, okay, you're free. Your family obligations are over. And Ruth says, no way. So she travels back uh, to Judah and she's there. And if you, long story short, she's out like trying, like picking up these extra wheat that has fallen off. Like for us, we would say kind of like digging through the garbage is what we would say. She's just find, trying to find food scraps. She finds herself on the edge of a field. As it turns out, the, that field belongs to a man named Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi. What's the first line of defense for caring for widows? Is the, is the family. It's the relatives. And so Boaz hears about He's like, so who are you? And he's like, oh, okay. And this is what Boaz says to Ruth. In Ruth chapter 2. You should read the whole book, by the way. It's only a few chapters. But Boaz answered her... He said, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And, and Boaz begins to show favor to her, a little bit like, kind of a little bit too much favor, and they get married. And they have a son, and this is a long, this is a long story short, Ruth becomes the great-grandmother to King David, a foreigner, a widow. She gets remarried, and God blesses her. And I just want to highlight this idea that you would never guess that Ruth would be written into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you read just chapter one of her story, She's like, I will go with you. We're probably both going to die. That's a pretty low point in the story. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where your family's at today. Didn't I say that you can can draw some beautiful principles, even out of some of the weird passages, okay? 
you might be in a pretty difficult, a pretty terrible chapter of your life story. I want to encourage you that your story's not over yet. God's not done writing your story yet. And just like Ruth trusts God at rock bottom, in the midst and the depths of her grief, she trusts God. And she says, you know what? I'm going to choose to do the right thing even in this moment. I'm going to choose God. I'm going to choose goodness. I'm going to choose to do the next right thing. And she doesn't know what things are going to look like back in Judah. She doesn't know if, there's a, if there is someone back there who is going to show favor and grace and mercy. She doesn't know there's a future husband for her waiting for her back there. She doesn't know there's a high King David that's going to be her great-grandson. She doesn't even know about God's plan to redeem the world. She doesn't know about Jesus Christ the Messiah hundreds of years down the road. She doesn't know any of the rest of the story. But she says, here's what I know. Something inside me tells me I need to vow myself to care for you to the point where her own parents are probably trying to convince her that it's a terrible idea. Just let Naomi go. Just let Naomi go. Don't seal your fate with her. And she says, I'm going to do this right thing. I'm going to honor God even if no one else sees it. Even if it doesn't work out. Even if I die, I'm going to do the right thing. Keep sowing those seeds of righteousness. Keep following the Holy Spirit. Care for your family. Serve. Help. Make that phone call today. Even if no one else sees it. Let me encourage you with Galatians 6, 9 through 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If, what? Everyone say it. If we don't give up. In the, in the lowest chapter of your story, you're going to be weary of doing good and doing the right thing. You're going to be tempted. I should just look out for me. I should just live my best life right now. Paul says to the young widows, don't do that. Be like Ruth. Do the right thing. He says, don't give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. No one is going to hear that phone call that you make to an elderly relative. No one is going to calculate how much money you spend on taking care, on, on, on contributing to your family members. No one, no, one is going to, no one is going to maybe even say thank you for showing up to, to the Christian Retirement Village on a regular basis and just spending an afternoon getting to know someone who's lonely. But God does. God sees you. God hears you. And in due season... If we continue to sow seeds of righteousness, we will reap what we sow. Let's stand and worship our Father in heaven. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.